1: Tobias Adrian runs the Monetary and Capital Markets Department at the IMF. He used to be at the New York Fed. We're familiar with his academic work on financial stability. And in the next half hour, on the occasion of the release of the fund's financial stability report, we took a tour of what's at risk in the entire world. Yes, we got to collateralize loan obligations. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Road Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brendan Greeley. Colby Smith and I are at the IMF and World Bank Spring Meetings in Washington, D.C. We usually talk about developed and developing markets in two separate conversations, but the surprise here, talking to Tobias, is how similar the problems are. Hot capital comes in, overvalues some assets, encourages debt. The regulatory institutions of a state have to be ready for capital. That's just as true in the United States as it is in Turkey. We started with the Fed, which has just spent 10 years raising asset values. I asked whether the Fed is stuck now. It picked those assets up and now it has to hold them.
2: Here's Tobias. Let me put it in the following way. There's not only one policy tool, right? Monetary policy is an important tool and the primary objectives for monetary policy is to achieve price stability and, in some countries, maximum employment. The easy monetary policy by historical standards uh, was indeed aimed at increasing inflation to target and increasing employment. One of the channels of transmission is that easy financing conditions or low interest rates are fueling funding, and so some of the buildup in credit is a desired outcome of monetary policy. But of course, there's a limit to how much credit there can be and how much leverage there can be. And so it's important to have some prudential roles around underwriting standards. And indeed, we see that in the banking sector, where prudential standards have been tightened after the global financial crisis. And where banks have always been regulated uh, to make sure that they have enough capital relative to their borrowing, their other borrowing, so that leverage is constrained. For corporations, what we have seen is that on average leverage has gone up and perhaps more worrisome, there are some pockets, some weak tail in the corporate sector where leverage has increased quite dramatically. And so the question we are raising is whether that could be dangerous in the downturn. And so it's not only old rollover risk, which is what you're mentioning. So some of those companies might have a problem to roll over, But it's also that some of those companies could be downgraded or they could fail because they have very high leverage. So they could run out of capital if a bad shock hits. And so, basically, our policy advice is to put some prudential tools around the rise of corporate leverage. So,
1: we've been focusing on the now traditional lever of monetary policy, of quantitative tightening or easing, when in fact it's actually the supervisory role of the central bank which should be addressing this problem right now.
2: Well, in different countries you have different setups. Um, In the US, the Federal Reserve is one of the banking supervisors and there are other banking supervisors such as the FDIC and the OCC as well as state supervisors. So the Fed has a supervisory role, but the Fed also has some system-wide goal of financial stability, of preserving financial stability that's explicitly written in Dodd-Frank. Now, the Fed doesn't necessarily have all the tools to make sure that the system is safe. And this is where the tension arises. And you can see that in 2015 when the Fed actually started to use supervisory guidance to constrain the leverage of leveraged loans at the origination stage. Because most leveraged loans, not all, but most leveraged loans are originated by banks. Now they don't end up holding those leverage loans. They originate them and then they sell them. What the guidance said is, even if you sell those loans, you should make sure that leverage is not too high. So it had a microprudential goal with a microprudential tool. The General Accounting Office (GAO) came and said that the Fed was no longer allowed to do that because. Supervisor guidance should not be used for macroprudential purposes. And so as a result, now the Fed actually doesn't have a a goal for the system-wide macroprudential underwriting standard, say in the leveraged loan market or in other corporate credit markets.
0: And on that point with leveraged loans, um, I mean, because they're not being held on bank balance sheets, does that mean that we don't need to worry about the systemic ramifications of them?
2: Well, I would still worry for a number of reasons. So number one, leveraged loans are, to some extent, moved into CLOs, there they are tranched, and some of those tranches, such as the triple B tranches uh, or the AAA tranches, do end up on bank balance sheets. Um, so there is you know not all goes away those but it's are not necessarily higher necess- rating yeah those are the higher rated ones typically and they're not necessarily in the US they could be anywhere in the world so that's number one now of course in general the banks are fairly well capitalized another part goes to asset managers and so leveraged loans are partially held by asset managers and we don't quite understand how the investors into the asset managers would behave if there was a bad shock to credit quality, say, due to a recession or so. Um, so the dynamics in the asset management industry, so the asset management industry has become a much larger holder of highly levered instruments, such as leverage loans and high yield. But how that behaves as we move into, say, uh, much lower growth or even negative growth, we don't quite know.
0: Mm-hmm. And we saw a bit of that in December when we saw, you know, pretty aggressive outflows in, in the loan space. Uh, so do you think that was in a way a preview of a larger crisis or a period of volatility uh, that, that we could potentially see?
2: So I thought that uh, 2018 Q4 was rather reassuring because we saw these very, very large drops in asset prices, right? I mean, Nasdaq dropped more than 20 percent, credit spreads widened both in leveraged loans and high yield and emerging markets by 100 or even more than 100 basis points. So these are very, very stressed uh, environments, yet we didn't see systemic issues. It's true the leveraged loan market dried up, there was no longer issuance, but we didn't see the distress of major players or even small players, right? It was just sort of like asset prices moved down and then they moved back up and the system was pretty resilient. So I thought that was actually rather reassuring. Having said that, anecdotal evidence, talking to market participants, said that by the end of December, market liquidity was very, mm-hmm. very thin. So mm-hmm. it, was, it had become a very one-sided market.
1: It left a lot of us with the impression that the Fed, though it would never say so explicitly, felt a responsibility to prop up financial markets.
2: So I wouldn't put it uh, in quite that way. I think what happened is that downside risks to growth increased dramatically in the fall. So that, say, over the next year, there was more and more risk of a disorderly downturn, like a hard lending. And I would say that what the Fed did was a risk management approach to monetary policy, something that you know, Yellen and Bernanke had already talked about many times. And so I think what they did was to take out some of the downside risks to growth. And that in turn was possible because inflation was still below target. So there was room for monetary policy to be easier relative to what had been priced in.
1: I want to talk a little bit about Europe. We've been focusing a lot on Italy. Uh, but there's a detail um, in this report that that sort of jumped out at me, which is that there's a concern in the report about the interplay between banks and sovereign bonds, uh, that banks are buying the sovereign debt of their own countries, right? And obviously, that's a cycle that can deteriorate. And we watch that cycle deteriorate uh, in, in real time in a catastrophic way about 10 years ago. Um, and so then there's this quote that says, domestic government bond portfolios of banking systems are large relative to assets in several countries, Belgium, Italy, Portugal, and Spain. It may just be that they have higher yield, but it also may be uh, that they're risk weighted at zero. So that was precisely the issue And it seems like with everything that has happened, all of the supervisory mechanisms that have been put in place, it was surprising to read that because sovereign debt is still risk-weighted at zero inside the internal risk-weighting of the banks, um, that we still have the exact same risk on the books that was a big part of the euro crisis.
2: Yeah, so um, of course capital in European banks has increased and the non-performing loan ratios have gone down. So in overall bank balance sheets have improved uh, in, in, in Europe overall. But in some countries, as you mentioned, uh, the exposure of the banks to the domestic sovereign has continued to increase and is at fairly elevated levels. The regulatory risk weights that are applied to those sovereign holdings uh, is set at zero. And there have been discussions at the Basel Committee as to whether that should be changed. Yeah, that feels fixable. Uh, the Basel Committee has not come to a conclusion because there are two sides to this argument. So on the one side is the prudential point of view, which is that if the sovereign is risky, perhaps you know around the world, in many cases, we see that the sovereign has unsustainable fiscal policies, gets into trouble. And if then the banking system is also undercapitalized because of its exposure to the sovereign, that makes crisis that much worse. And that we see again and again, in particular in non-G20 countries, in the broader membership of the fund. That happens all the time. So having capital in the banks relative to the sovereign exposure would be good from that point of view. The counter-argument is always that, well, that would potentially increase the costs of fund for treasuries, And that's typically the main argument for why these risk weights are not implemented. But one of the things that we've seen all over, with a few exceptions, Italy among them, is
1: that the cost of funding for treasuries consistently goes down. Unless a specific country, like Turkey, happens to be right now going through a funding crisis... Generally in the world, and particularly in the developed world in Europe, in the United States, in Japan, the cost of funding continues to go down in a 30-year cycle no matter what. So that I, I find that,
2: right. I know it's not your argument, but I find right. that an unconvincing argument. Right. So a related argument is that banks are often the buyers of last resort for sovereign paper. And so if they have to hold more risk uh, capital against the sovereign exposures, they might play less of that role of a buyer of last resort. So those are the typical arguments. And as I said, in the Basel Committee, you know, there is a discussion. There was a working paper that was published last year that presented all of these arguments. And the IMF uh, also had a staff paper where we went through all these different channels and we concluded, well, you know, there are arguments on both sides. I mean, in the end of the day, we are not a prudential regulator, right? We do assessments and we help in crisis cases. Uh, but I do want to know that we see often that undercapitalized banking systems, when the sovereign is in trouble, is, is an amplification mechanism for uh, downside risks. And that's what we call the sovereign bank nexus. Within Europe, um, is Italy an exception
1: or is Italy an indicator
2: Yeah, so what we saw last year is that sovereign spreads increased for Italy, but not for the other peripheral countries. And that was quite different from 2010, 11, and 12, when it was the whole periphery where the spreads increased. So last year didn't feel like contagion. It really felt like differentiation. And that is somewhat reassuring because it says that, well, If the market worries about the fiscal position of one particular country, that does not necessarily spill over to other European countries.
0: Another area of the world that um, you know has very worrying uh, debt situation is in China. Um, and that's something that we um, have been covering quite closely, just in the way that the Chinese officials have tried to you know prop up the economy, but also not put pressure on, on already pretty worrisome debt levels. Is there a way to kind of thread that needle and to prop up growth without kind of exacerbating the imbalances in the economy?
2: So what is helpful in the Chinese case is that while overall debt levels are fairly elevated, sovereign debt levels are actually not that elevated. So there is some fiscal space at the sovereign level and this is exactly what the authorities have been using. So they have eased uh, fiscal policy via tax policies and it seems to be working. So it was an easing of fiscal policy as well as an easing monetary policy and growth is fairly elevated. It has it; it's declining very slightly in our forecast, but it's still above six percent.
0: And so much of the um, outlook for risk assets kind of hinges on what's going on in China and a stabilization of growth elsewhere, as well as kind of what's going on with the Fed and central banks.
1: So, I mean, it seems like the challenge right now in China is that uh, they need to provide the stimulus, and at the same time, they have been over the last five years, been going through a very open process of professionalizing their capital markets for other long-term goals that they have. Where do you see China in terms of that process of standardizing their capital markets in the way the rest of the world would expect? And is it going to be difficult to do that if they're stimulating right now?
2: I don't think that the stimulus is uh, in the way of opening up the capital markets. So um, the uh, Chinese bond markets, as well as equity markets, have been included in in global bond and equity indices now. And what we see in recent months is that there's more and more inflow uh, of global investors into Chinese markets. Now, having said that, the penetration of these global investors of the domestic financial system is still much lower in China relative to other markets. But this will probably increase over time. At the same time, China has also been a lender to to many companies around the world. So, um, you know, there is more and more integration of the financial system into the rest of the world. But much more needs to be done in order to get to, say, the levels of advanced economies in in the US or Europe or so. Is that penetration proceeding at a healthy pace? Is it moving too fast? No, I would say it's fairly gradual at the moment. So I don't think it's unhealthy.
0: And and do you think that test of Chinese capital markets will come when, and if there's volatility and uh, you you see what officials do when those investors want to pull their capital, um, do you believe that you know, capital controls is still a primary tool in their toolkit?
2: So it is true that two or three years ago, Chinese authorities Mm -hmm. tightened capital controls to some extent. Um, But, um, you know, it's hard to say what the policies are going to be in the future. I would expect that as China is becoming more and more integrated with global financial markets, these types of uh, policy tools are going to be less and less common.
0: That would be a huge, uh, you know, blow to confidence in their message of, you know, opening up their capital markets if they were to do that, right?
2: It depends on how it's done. So it's not an area that I have personally looked into very deeply, even though others at the fund, of course, have. But from what I understand, the capital controls were primarily for domestic Chinese, mm-hmm, not so much mm-hmm. for the foreign investors. And so in that sense, it, you know, it, it's not hurtful that much for the foreign investors. It's more for the domestic that it's, it's, uh, it's a barrier. I want
1: want to talk a little bit about housing, um, because you go into it in great detail in the report. uh, There's this model in the US, and to a lesser extent in Europe as well, where um, if you are a middle class, median salary uh, worker, um, your best hope of picking up a financial asset is to buy a house. And when you do, for your entire life, it's going to be by far the biggest single part of your portfolio. So that's a model that we've had for a long time. And the way you you buy that asset is through a 30-year mortgage. It's well-established. But the scenario that you describe in the report is that asset prices and housing prices, the the asset part of the house as opposed to the roof over your head part of the house, um, is becoming less and less stable, which then becomes an inequality issue because it it makes middle class assets risky. So is the 30-year mortgage idea broken?
2: So there are other countries that don't have the 30-year fixed rate mortgage but that have variable rate mortgages. And that's particularly true in the UK. Um, And so that has the impact that when market interest rates fluctuate, that directly impacts the mortgage payments of the households. So in some sense, monetary policy transmission is a lot more direct because you feel it in your pocket. But at the same time, Uh, this can also be destabilizing because households might not be able to afford those mortgages anymore. And indeed, when you think back of the subprime mortgage crisis, many of those subprime mortgages were arms or some were flexible rate mortgages. And there you saw some of these dynamics playing out where home buyers couldn't afford once interest rates were went up. Now, of course, once the crisis hit, interest rates were lowered. And, and that, that point, also, I mean, that also then folds
1: into growth because you're also yeah, talking about whole, households that have a much higher marginal absolutely. propensity to spend.
2: Absolutely. So the other thing that is very interesting to think about is the financial inclusion aspect, right? Because subprime mortgages, in the end of the day, is a great way for financial inclusion. Buyers that were not able to afford houses were now able to afford houses but of course there were lots of risks that went hand in hand with this inclusion so our approach is always to say you know financial inclusion is something very good and it can be an equalizing force but at the same time uh, good regulation is even more necessary in order to make financial inclusion work
1: can good regulation push back against capital inflows one of the things that we saw in 2005 and 2006 in particular was capital coming into the United States looking for any kind of dollar-denominated asset. You know, The mortgage underwriting isn't as awful now as it was before, but one thing that you're seeing is that house prices are going up. So you have in a ton of cities, house prices are unaffordable, and it's moving down into smaller cities as well. We're not just talking about San Francisco and New York. So can you possibly regulate in a way that continues to keep housing affordable and prevents these capital inflows. I mean, eventually, you're talk, what you're really talking about when you talk about regulation
2: is not mortgage regulation. You're talking about capital controls. Yeah. So there are a number of countries that have imposed capital controls relative to these capital flows into, into housing markets. Um, and at the fund, we view those... In some circumstances, as something that could be used, but it's not a first order tool. So, the first order tool should be uh, via underwriting standards of the mortgages uh, or via uh, the risk weights of the lenders, so as to make sure that those that are getting mortgages get those, um, you know, have, uh, you know, are not taking on uh, excessively risky uh, positions, but of course there are, there's lots of house buying that is uh, due to foreign buyers that don't. Take out any loans, and in those circumstances, these macroprudential tools don't work at all. And this is where, in some circumstances, these capital flow measures have been used. And we do show some evidence that even the macroprudential tools seem to work better. Capital flow measures also do work to some extent to mitigate downside risk to housing prices. Let me—I
1: just want to put a fine point on what you're saying to make sure I understand it correctly. Um, In the report, you talk about in particular developed markets and in the U.S., hot capital flows actually make house prices less stable. That was surprising to me because, and I guess it's a kind of snobbery as an American, we're not used to talking about hot capital flows into our country. We're used to talking about hot capital flows that go into uh, 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 Turkey or into Argentina. So um, is it fair to say that foreign money coming into the United States looking for dollar assets is a big part of why housing has become so unaffordable in the U.S., particularly in cities?
2: Uh, i wouldn't go as far as saying oh, that man i hope um, you would <laughs> so <laughs> i'm sorry about that uh so we don't we don't really have so in this report we don't really have evidence for that um it's a hypothesis that is certainly worth exploring more oh that was nicely done <laughs> <laughs> um
0: so just going back to these capital controls i mean the funds thinking about capital controls have changed quite dramatically um in recent years So what then is the appropriate use of capital controls? And and when you look at a country like Argentina and Turkey, like Brendan mentioned, could you make the case for capital controls there?
2: There is this thing called the institutional view of the IMF. And it basically says that capital measures, capital flow measures, CFMs, could be used in some circumstances. So these are inflow surges. So when you have a surge of capital flow, that might be destabilizing. And that's sort of like a macroprudential tool, right? Because the surge might fuel leverage in the domestic economy. And so imposing some you know, CFMs could slow down that inflow surge. Secondly, there can be outflow surges and you can temporarily impose some sort of measures to slow down the outflow because this might be disorderly and not related to the domestic economy. And thirdly, Uh, there can be capital flow measures that have been in place historically. And as you're transitioning, say, from an emerging market to a more developed economy, one would expect that over time those measures would be phased out. But the fund views the measures that have historically been in place as continuing to be in place as being something that is permissible. So you're talking
1: about volumes, but uh, again, and there is the fun view, which changes slowly, but Olivier Blanchard, the right. former chief economist, uh, is now sort of free to talk openly about right. this stuff. And he's he was on this podcast, and he drew a distinction between types of capital flows, and he said, look, Foreign direct investment, sort of directly investing in a plant in the country, so long as you tightly define it, is vastly preferable to portfolio flows of investors looking at you know, benchmark bond indexes. So is it possible to also distinguish between types of investments and say these capital investments are good, they help economic growth,
2: these types of investments are destabilizing? I would be a little bit more differentiated than that. So, I think portfolio flows can be very useful for countries. But what is important is that there is a sound prudential and macroprudential regulatory uh, setting in place in order to make sure that these uh, portfolio flows are used productively within the country. I would not say that. As a general matter, portfolio flows are bad while FTI is good or something like that. I do think we see many countries where portfolio flows can be used for many productive purposes. We're having a broader conversation
1: about different kinds of instability all over the world. It seems like, as was the case in 2008-9, they're all symptoms of the exact same problem, which is that there's a lot of saving in the world, sloshing around, looking for return and it's going to move from place to place. And so in tightening capital controls or looking at macroprudential regulations or tightening mortgage requirements, you're basically you're squeezing the toothpaste tube and the toothpaste is just going to go somewhere else. Is are we looking at an unprecedented level of saving as the problem?
2: So capital flowing around is a good thing. What is the problem is when the domestic economy is not set up to use it in a productive way. And that's true for emerging markets or low-income countries, as well as for the U.S., as you pointed out earlier, right? I mean, we had all these capital flows flowing into the U.S. that fueled the subprime bubble, but then the regulatory setup wasn't appropriate to deal with these inflows, and they were fueled into excessively risky areas. So any economy has to put regulations prudential measures into place to deal with these capital inflows but once those are in place then you know capital flows can be very good and productive and useful
1: so the answer seems like we need to start treating developed economies as just as susceptible to being regulatorily overwhelmed by capital flows as we as we do in
2: developing countries absolutely absolutely so in countries say very open economies such as uh, Australia or Canada, um, you know, that are very developed, they do have massive capital flows, but they can deal with that because they have a very flexible, they have flexible markets, and they are very well developed financial markets, and they have a tight uh, regulatory and prudential system. So, it's really you ha- you have to be set up right to deal with the flows, and once you do that, then it's beneficial.
0: Isn't Canada on the verge of a housing crisis?
2: So, in our Article 4, we have looked at the housing markets uh, in in great detail, and we are currently in the process of doing an FCEP as well in Canada, where we again look at the housing market in great detail. And it is true that, uh, particularly in some cities, such as Toronto and Vancouver, price to earnings ratios are very elevated. And indeed, in this chapter of the GFSR, we show that high price to earnings ratios tend to forecast lots of downside risk. Also credit to GDP is relatively elevated in Canada, so um, this article 4 indeed argues that housing prices are at risk in Canada. But having said that, Canada has a very good regulatory system as well, and so it might well be the case that it can deal with fluctuations in housing prices without systemic consequences. Tobias Adrian,
1: I, I had not expected that we'd make it all the way to Canada in this conversation, <laughs> but we did. Thank you very much.
2: Yeah, wonderful. Thanks Thank very you. much for having me.
1: Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Road Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. Please email us, alphachat at ft.com for any reason at all. For my part, I'm going to wonder why the value of my home did not shoot up like everyone else's. I blame foreign capital.